Hi, this is Ken Nagel, and you're listening to Yo MTG Taps. Welcome to episode 15 of Yo MTG Tabs. These are your hosts. I am Big Head Joe, and this man right here. This is Joey Pasco. How's it going, everybody? Hey, uh, it's been been a little while. It has been a while for us. It might not feel as long for everyone else because they just got our last podcast about this time last week. Plus, it was like kind of a big fat episode last last week, so we figured it was okay to uh, to take a little break. For sure. Um, plus, we wanted some news to kind of pile up for us to have something to talk about. Um, we should probably just start off um, with our last episode was kind of a, um, kind of controversial, which we expected it to be. That makes for good radio. That's so. right. In the end, Wizards made their announcement and made their choice as far as what they were going to do with the uh, reserved list and reprints. And um, Feel how you won about Lloyd's opinions on the subject? Lloyd won. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> at, at least, yeah, his, his, uh, he's, he's happier than we are, anyway. So uh, if you haven't heard, last, uh, I guess it was last Tuesday or Wednesday, Wizards posted that they... Um, so here, you want to you read about it? Sure. Wizards of the Coast recently previewed Phyrexian Negator and Masticore as premium cards that will appear in 2010 Magic Reserved products. No pun intended with the <laughs> reserved sign there, I'm sure. Although our reprint policy allows for these premium versions, concern from the community about future reprints has prompted us to alter the policy. Below are all premium versions of reserved list cards that will be released in 2010. Dual Decks, Phyrexia vs. The Coalition, March 19th. Phyrexian Negator. From the Vault Relics, to be released August 27th. We're going to have Karn Silver Golem, Masticor, Memory Jar, and Mox Diamond. Which is pretty, pretty damn exciting. cool. Yeah. yeah. Now, Judge Promos, um, various releases, Phyrexian Dreadnought, Morphling, Thawing Glaciers, and Wheel of Fortune. These premium cards will be produced and distributed as specified. Thereafter, Wizards of the Coast will not print any physical reserved list card in a tournament legal version, either in premium or non-premium form. And then the updated reprint policy can be found here, but it's basically the same thing. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it kind of sucks. Um, I had written, like, a kind of a statement, a summary um, that I wanted to mention on today's episode, but I wrote it before they uh, before they made this announcement. Um, either way, I'm, I'm going to read it. This is just, I wanted to mention this because it kind of sums up the way I feel about the reserved list in a more concise manner than a two and a half hour episode like last time. So um, I'll, ju- I'll just read this. It all boils down to this. What happens to a format that's already quite difficult to break into monetarily when it becomes increasingly more so. If the values continue to increase and they show no signs of stopping, for example, what is it? Caracas. Caracas has now reached $30. Um, it was, I think, less than $10 less than a month ago. Um, so if the values continue to increase, breaking into Legacy and Vintage does not get any easier, and if Wizards wish- wishes this format, specifically Legacy, to continue to thrive and grow, something needs to be done. Otherwise, someone who wants to start playing Legacy a year from now will have an even more difficult time than we're having right now. 
Just imagine someone trying to get into the legacy five years from now. It seems to be that legacy as a format is between a rock and a hard place. If Wizards decides to help the format by reprinting cards, players are upset about the values of the cards. If nothing is done, players are priced out of the format, leading to a situation where supporting the format with tournaments becomes increasingly more difficult due to a lack of players. Legacy players, if you want your format to be supported, if you want your format to grow, then you need to consider the fact that Wizards may need to put forth more legacy cards into the market. Shot down. <laughs> so uh, that, was, that was how I felt, and I, I pretty much sent this to Wizards after they, um, they made their announcement. Not that it's going to do any good, but at least I, I want... I like the fact that, uh, that they allow our voices to be heard anyway. Sure, so absolutely. Um, I, I just think... And that, that's what it is. It's like they're just going to... It's just The format is... People are saying it's not dead. Well, no, it's not dead. Not right now. Not right now. But um, we have historical precedence for this. Vintage went through this situation. So if they want it to turn into the next Vintage, then that's fine, because that's... That, to me, is what's going to happen, at least based on the past. People are going to have to spend extravagant amounts of money, more extravagant amounts of money than they're already spending, and uh, proxies are going to be are going to end up in the format, which is, I guess, fine. But whatever. I guess that's the, the, the point is it's, it's already difficult. It's only going to get more difficult. Wizards, you know, shut us down, and I guess we can't really... Uh, there's no reason to complain about it anymore because it's not going to get us anywhere. Sure. Well, here's the way I feel about it. Um, you know, I'm not losing anything. Right. So, because I mostly play standard and every once in a while, or like, I guess one time thus far, but I mm-hmm. will squeak my way into extended tournaments here and there. Right. But at, at least at this point, I'm not given any room to branch out into other formats. And, I mean, frankly, with that announcement being set forth, I will not play Legacy or Vintage. It's just right. as simple as that. I, I just won't play it. I mean, like, I don't... I don't. And here's the thing. I don't disagree with their decision. Right. Frankly, I don't. Because they're, I don't run Wizards of the Coast. My, like, I am not set to financially benefit from any of their decisions as a business entity. And they made the decision that they feel is the best decision for their business. And that's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But at the same time, I'm not going to play that, you know, I'm not going to play that format. I'm not going to play Legacy. I'm not going to play Vintage. I've made that decision seeing their decision. You know, they're allowed to make a decision. I'm allowed to make a decision. So I'm not ever going to play Legacy or Vintage. I'm just never going to do it. Don't care. You know, I don't yeah. care enough. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll play standard. I'll play extended. I, I think um, one of the stranger things about it is that we're not getting any sort of explanation, which I think we do deserve. I think players deserve an explanation as to why this is happening, but apparently not. we're not getting one. Um, Aaron Forsyth posted on Twitter, Sometimes the desires of the individual, parentheses, me, others, and the needs of the corporation do not align won't be much more of an explanation. Hasbro was not a factor in anything. So it, it seems kind of fishy when it sounds like a good majority of the player base would like reprints. Uh, apparently, people inside Wizards feel the same way. And Hasbro had nothing to do with it. Well, then, 
logic tells you then reprints or what's going to happen. But it didn't. So we haven't heard, you know, what it was, and apparently we're not going to. Um, Mark Rosewater posted on Twitter uh, regarding the reserved list, it's hard to defend a decision I can't talk about. It's just something we're going to have to live with. And a little frowny face. So it sounds, I mean, here's two guys from Wizards, big, you know, they're not like... Uh, yeah, Mark Rosewater's no small fry in yeah. the corporation. <laughs> and it seems like they're even upset about it. So what happened? You know, where where's the problem? What, you know, but we're not going to find out. So that's kind of fishy. Um, we did, since we did want to mention, um, our friend Keith's blog. Yeah, our friend Keith has a blog called Timmy for Life. It's timmyforlife.blogspot.com. He actually sent it to us a while ago, and honestly, I, like, didn't realize he was updating it last year all that much, so, like, we never mentioned it before, but then he's actually made some updates to it over the last couple weeks that I've mentioned through Twitter and other things, um... And we wanted to just read this uh, statement that he made on the reserve list. And, you know, as Timmy for Life would suggest, he is a lifelong casual player. Um, And so we're going to just read this because I thought it was, you know, nice, concise point. And uh, I wanted to uh, pump up his blog a little bit on the uh, podcast anyway because it's pretty damn good. So, okay, here's what he said. So I've been reading about the handling of the reserve list for quite some time now, especially in the wake of articles by Ben Blyweiss and also in the forums on MTG Salvation. That being said, I finally felt it was time for me to make my opinion known. The reserve list puts the game in a box. The policy basically says, if you were around since the beginning, great, enjoy the legacy and vintage formats. However, if you're new to the game, we're not going to make it at, make it at all easy, I'm guessing that's what he meant, at all easy for you to get into anything other than standard. I would even make the case for, that extended can be hard to break into. I digress. The point is everyone goes on and on about how the value of their cards would go down. So, let me ask you a question. What do you care more about, the health of the game over time or your own investment in the game? If you answered yes to both, great. You should care about your investment. But if you solely care about the investment and don't give a rat's ass about the health of the game, then we have a very serious issue. Listen, people, they aren't going to reprint power, and if they do, it's going to be in very limited formats, and I honestly don't see it making much of a price difference on the older version. People still want that card and are willing to pay for it. What getting rid of the reserve list does is allows cards that have very little value in the first place anyway a chance to be reprinted or functionally reprinted or whatever they want to do. Wizards needs to make the game accessible to a large range of players who want to play a large number of formats. I myself would love to get into Legacy and Vintage, but I have a mortgage, and there's no way in hell I'm spending that kind of money to get into the format. Wizards has just lost one player to a format they are trying to push more, and I know for a fact that I'm not the only person to feel this way. I'm one of thousands. Yes, it's true that the recent turnout in GP Legacy events has been staggering, but take a moment to reflect on how many people actually showed up with Tier 1 decks that could compete. People came because they wanted to be able to play with every card they've ever bought. They don't want to be restricted by standard, where you're investing so much more over time to stay current. The point is that Reserve List serves one purpose, to keep the value of cards for collectors and sellers. That's it. That's what it boils down to, ladies and gents. These people want to ensure that their underground C will still sell for $90. They care about the value of their card, not the game. I love this game, yes, even though it frustrates the hell out of me. And I want to see the game continue to grow and see the success that has recently been seeing. The game is not slowing down anytime soon, but it needs room to grow. The final word is that the reserve list helps keep the game from growing. Think about it. So, yeah, pretty concise point, and I thought that... uh was pretty damn well stated too. Yep. Um, and there, you'll you'll find things like this all over the web. I mean, um, 
MTG Salvation has a forum post where people are posting this kind of thing, uh, maybe not so eloquently, um, or maybe not so non-violently, um, yeah. <laughs> but I guess the bottom line is we really can't do anything about it at this point. I mean, the, the best thing we can do is to go to Wizard's site and uh, find uh, find the link that allows you to submit your feedback to customer service and just let them know how you feel. Um, well, the best thing you can do is never show up to a legacy or vintage event, but well, we're not going to go that I think far. that's going to happen anyway, regardless. Right. You know, I'm going to do that whether I want to or not. I can't. I don't have the... I'm not going to show up to a legacy event because Unless I... Unless we're covering it. Yeah, I'll show up to a legacy event because of that. I mean, I won't enter a legacy event, likely, unless I can... It's going to be difficult for me to enter a legacy event. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, we can want to move on? Are you? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think we've said all... We, I mean, we, we've definitely exhausted this topic, so... Uh, so, uh, also last weekend, we had GP Kuala Lumpur, which was a standard tournament, and it was won by Ding Yuan Leong, who, uh, who won with what I'm calling barely Rakdos, because it was mono-red splashing black for Blightning in the main deck and Doomblade and Deathmark in the sideboard. Um, more notably, the top eight was made up of barely Rakdos, a Koros deck, and six Jun decks. So um, the headline on Wizard's site for, uh, for the tournament once it was over was Ding Dong, Jund is dead in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I hear some interesting tweets about GP Kuala Lumpur. Pat Chapin says, Ding Dong Jund is dead? That is an interesting definition of dead. <laughs> that was kind of the same thing I was thinking. Like, there's six Jund decks in the top eight. Where are you getting the idea that it's dead? Um, Brian Kibler uh, said he ended up 20-something in Kuala Lumpur. He didn't play against anything but Jund or Naya all tournament. Kind of wish I was going to Brussels now. I don't know what's going on in Brussels, but I assume it's another GP, and I guess he's just saying he wants to play in another GP. Um, Zvi Malshowitz says, It's hard not to feel let down by what happened in GP Kuala Lumpur, as, winner aside, Jun flat out took over, and Jun plus Naya overran the field. So sad. So sad. And then uh, Aaron Forsyth said, When Jun puts six in the top eight, it doesn't win. If it puts only two to three in, it wins. Which am I supposed to root for? So, so, so the, in summary, Jund is definitely not dead. No, certainly not. Um, you know, uh, I, I have to admit something, which I think we've kind of said, but yeah, I don't think on that like, anyone really understands that we don't actually hate Jund. We just, you know, we just want more variety in our coverage because we like to watch coverage. Right. So what was the analogy you made about like... Oh, I, I just said... Football you know, teams. Football teams, right. Because, you know, we're Ravens fans. Our uh, arch enemy is the Pittsburgh Steelers, at least from the Baltimore perspective. So it would just be like when it go, hits into the playoffs, the majority of the teams are Pittsburgh Steelers. Like, well, where's the team I want to root for? It's like all Steelers and then the Seahawks or something. Like, I don't... I don't you know, I'm not from Seattle. I don't really... Hate the Seahawks or, or like the Seahawks, but like, so who do I root for? There's, it's just I want more variety. I want that's uh, all choices. That's all. So, so. We're, we're not gonna we're not gonna go on and on about Jund anymore. But right. I just want to say that I have to admit 
that I really like playing against Jund. And it's not just because I tied once and beat it once with Mythic the other day. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, it's a really fun match to play. Like, it's a really exciting match. It's intense. There's just a lot going on, and I actually had a blast playing against it. So so I don't hate Jund. Right. I, you know, it's just a variety issue. But anyway, let's move uh, right well, on. I just wanted to mention oh, yeah, sure. on that topic, um, and just to plug limited resources which I'm sure you all listen to anyway. So uh, on the most recent episode of Limited Resources, they did an interview with Patrick Chapin, and um, and he mentioned something that I, I definitely... Copying off us. What? Yeah, I know. God, Copycats. guys. Only one podcast Copycats. is allowed to interview Patrick Chapin. Well, I thought we had the exclusive rights for like six months. <laughs> <laughs> no, but definitely uh, listen to that episode. Oh, but, man, listen to every episode of Limited Resources if you haven't. It's one of the best podcasts on the network. Exactly. It's fantastic. Um, but Patrick said um, w- was talking about top eight coverage, and he was saying that people want to be able to identify with a deck. Like people will um, will either identify with a player, you know, that they really like that they want to see do well, or uh, identify with a deck that they want to see do well. And, and he said that it was kind of like I'd never thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true for me because I'll you know I'll be following a tournament and it'll be like. Either I'll hear about a neat deck and I'll want it to go far, or I'll be you know rooting for the players that I like. Um, so in the case of Jund, when there are no players that you know of that you've ever heard of going into the top eight, you want to have a deck that you identify with. And when it's just like Jund, 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 and two more decks that you don't really you know have any affinity for. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but. It's just like it's disheartening, yeah. You know? Like I don't want to watch this. There's no variety here. Um, so, again, we've we've made it clear how we feel about Jund, but I guess we're just trying to always trying to make it make it a little bit clearer because there have been a lot of articles about uh, people complaining about Jund and oh, it's you know even Mike Flores wrote his um, in defense of Jund in yeah. defense of Jund article, right? It's just like people are defending Jund left and right. We just kind of wanted to make our opinions a little, little clearer. Um, so uh, one notable deck I wanted to mention from the uh, Kuala Lumpur coverage was a counterless blue-white control deck. Uh, it was run by Sam Black, Brian Kibler, and Brian Kowal. Maybe some more, but those are the names that I have written down here. Um, both Sam Black and Brian Kibler were both intending to play uh, Zvi Malshowitz's Mythic deck, but they both switched over at the tournament. There was even a tweet about it, about um, Sam Black trying to get the last few commons for his deck, <laughs> and it was like uh, he was having trouble getting like Field Mist Border Post and something else. <laughs> it's kind of just funny. It's like commons are so hard to come by. Um, but the the interesting thing was it's basically a blue white control deck with just no main deck permission there is some in the sideboard but um that's how i like to run control decks too yeah, yeah. I, I don't run any main deck counter spells and i side them in there you, i mean and that's one way to also um kind of make your counter spells relevant because if you have all your flash freezes and double negatives you know for example you know negates and essence scatters in the sideboard you're only siding them in when they're relevant cards right um so you're not going to side in Flash Freeze for, a, you know... A, a, you're playing as vampires. Right, exactly. So, um, and, and this is... Uh, it's not so far off from Chapin's blue-white control uh, deck. I mean, they're both blue-white control. Chapin's goes with the treasure hunt, uh, Jace, you know, lots of counterspells kind of thing. But um, 
And that's a deck that has kind of polarized uh, the community, I suppose, as far as it seems to me that a lot of people either hate it or love it. Um, and it's a difficult deck to play. And I kind of, I love the the style of deck. It's like my favorite kind of deck ever. It might even be my favorite deck ever. This one, you know, it's right up there with like Mystical Teachings. Um, but anyway, it's a... Uh, it's the kind of deck I like to play, but I know I'm aware of its uh, unforgiving nature. So I kind of, I accept losses with this deck a lot more easily than I would with other kinds of more forgiving decks. Um, I know it's going to take a lot more practice to play it. But um, Chapin actually said about the, um, regarding the blue-white counterless control. And where did he say this? He, he said this in his, uh, his article on Star City Games. Okay. He said, something important I want to mention is that this sort of blue-white might be just the cure for mages out there that have tried their hand at blue-white control and not found much success, but like the archetype. With the de-emphasizing of Jace, removing Halimar Depths, Treasure Hunt, and no main deck permission, as well as the ability to literally brute force people with X spells, this is a far more forgiving build that does not force the pilot to make as many potentially game-losing decisions on a nearly turn-by-turn -turn basis. So I, I wanted to mention that for the people that are into that. I thought that was a good point. Um, you might want to try out this version of blue-white control. Um, so you can find it in the coverage. Just go to dailymtg.com and uh, take a look at the coverage for Kuala Lumpur. Now, that wasn't the only GP that we've had since we've last recorded. Uh, this past weekend, we had an extended GP in Yokohama, which uh, the... The finals were a clash of the titans. Uh, it was Katsuhiro Mori, who played Thopter Depths, versus Masashiro Kuroda, who played Hypergenesis. Um, it was won by Katsuhiro Mori, but uh, the notable thing is both of these guys are Pro Tour veterans. So right. that's why, it's, you know, clash of the titans, because these guys are name, you know, pretty big name players. So the top eight here, other than the top two right now, because the internet's kind of down, we don't really have the exact placement, but here are the top eight lists. We had Atsuo Se playing Scapeshift, Zhu Ching Kuo playing Thopter Depths, Yasunori Baba playing All in Red. Uh, Tomoyuki Hanami playing Blood Moon Zoo, which I want to mention is uh, which is the same deck that our buddy Ben Friedman, um, who actually just posted his first article on O2Drop.com oh, cool, cool. Um, about the tournament. I'm guessing, because I didn't read the whole article, but mm -hmm. I'm guessing that um, he won the PTQ that I went to February 20th mm -hmm. um, playing um, Blood Moon Zoo. Uh, so Ben qualified for the freaking Pro Tour, which is appropriate because looking at his ranking, he was like 11 or 13 in the state. Yeah. So uh, congratulations, awesome. yeah, congratulations, congratulations, Ben. Been um, playing against you since you were a punk kid, and I think you're still in high school. But that's, I mean, that's <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, no, it's great. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making fun. But right, like, right, right. I mean, I remember Ben when he was yay high. Right. The getting on my nerves with Martyr of Sands in standard. But uh, I remember, I just remember playing against him and him being at like 150 life yeah. or something and being like, oh my god, really? Yeah. Like, I mean, I had fun playing against the deck. I think I made him play it out. I was like, okay, you're at 150 life. I met this guy beat me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and of course he did. But anyway, um, I digress. So we've got Kim Min Su playing a Doran aggro list. Takashi Ishihara playing Scapeshift. Um, 
scapeshift with more dudes than the other scapeshift. <laughs> uh, Katsuhiro Mori playing Thopter Depths. Which is the winning deck right the there. The winning deck list. Yes, indeed. It is a Thopter Depths list, to be sure. And uh, Masashiro Kuroda playing Hypergenesis. Notably running a Chroma's Memorial in the main deck. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Which awesome. is kind of neat. So let me look at this list. I love I love the Hypergenesis decks. I'm always like interested in these lists. They can kind of play whatever they want. That's the fun thing. It's like, uh, here's like the Hypergenesis package, and then like whatever crazy cards I feel like putting in here that cost way too much to uh to play, like Fungal Behemoth or something. Hey, what happened? Yeah, what did... Ha oh, you know what? Internet. Oh, the internet's yeah. down. Okay. So Damn I was like, it. So I was like, what the hell is Fungal Behemoth? Um, yeah, I don't remember what that does either. Unfortunately, we can't tell you. So let's run down... I'm going to run down the Masashiro Kuroda list, because Hypergenesis is an ever-evolving deck, whereas Thopter Deaths is pretty set in stone at this point, I think. He's getting there anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a great deck. I think it's won, like, the last, like, 20 extended events or something stupid. Like, uh, it's definitely a well, well, it didn't win when, uh, when Ben Friedman played it. That's true. So... Good on you, Ben. Uh, so check it out. So we've got 18 lands, 1 Calciform Pools, 3 Forbidden Orchard, 2 Forest, 4 Gemstone Mine, 4 Reflecting Pool, and 4 Tendo Ice Bridge. Um, so now the main deck, we've got 4 Angel of Despair, 4 Bogard and Hellkite, 3 Fungal Behemoth, 4 Progenitus, 1 Sakashima the Imposter, 4 Simeon Spirit Guide, 4 Terastodon. Um, other spells, we have 1 Acroma's Memorial, 4 Ardent Plea, 3 Compulsive Research, 1 Demonic Dread, 3 Hypergenesis, 2 Oblivion Ring, and 4 Violent Outburst. Um, sideboard, 2 Crovax Ascendant Hero, 2 Fire Spout, 2 Ingot Chewer, 2 Platinum Angel, 3 Ricochet Trap, 2 Shriek Maul, and 2 Venser. So a pretty interesting list there. Um, so that's, that's awesome. But he did not win. <laughs> no, but... Uh... We did want to use this opportunity to debut a new uh, a new segment that we're going to have um, maybe every episode, maybe every couple episodes. We'll see what happens. But um, it's a Pro Tour flashback. Yeah, we want to flashback <laughs> to some... Because uh, we were just like... Because Joe... Okay, I guess you want to talk... Because you know a little bit more about this than me. Um, about um, about Masashiro Kuroda. Right, he, he was the first ever Japanese Pro Tour champion um, back in Pro Tour Kobe 2004. He won with uh, basically like a, a big red kind of deck with um, with like arc sloggers. This was at the time when Affinity was running rampant, like Disciple of the Vault and Arcbound Ravager and the the uh, artifact lands. the artifact lands. They were all still legal in in standard. So um, you know everybody complains and talks about that time being oh it was a terrible time in Magic and but here we have a tournament, a Pro Tour that was won by a non-affinity deck and the deck he beat in the finals was not affinity it was not an affinity deck it was played by gabriel nasif the deck that nasif was playing it was essentially the beginnings of a tooth and nail deck it was cloud post or uh 12 post i think was what the name of the deck was where they played um just mana ramp into tooth and nail into platinum angel and dark steel colossus and things like that um and uh you know it pretty pretty uh innovative deck at the time and as anybody who was playing around then knows um when affinity was eventually pretty much destroyed by uh by bannings the top deck became tooth and nail so uh so there was there was the origins of that deck right there in the pro tour but yeah pro tour kobe 2004 you can actually still check out some video coverage of it on 
um, on the the mothership, wizards.com, um, just, or just do a Google search, Pro Tour Kobe 2004. Um, you should be able to find it. Um, that's how I found it anyway. Um, but yeah, it was significant because it was in Japan and it was, he was the first Japanese Pro Tour champion, you know, and the Japanese since then have been known to be very good players. And I think even before then they were, you know, in the beginnings of the game, we had the Americans just dominating tournaments. And you can say that that probably had a lot to do with the fact that the cards were just more available here in the United States. Um, but as the game became more widely distributed, you started seeing people like um, Kai Booty from Germany. Um, so, but once Magic Online came around, that's when a lot of other countries started uh, started doing better and better in Pro Tours. And at this point, uh, the Japanese did not have a champion for for the Pro Tour. So um, he is certainly you know a uh, a name player, and here he is back at the top at GP Yokohama. So uh, besides the notable win for Japan, um, the actual match was uh, was interesting. It was won by Fireball, which is just neat to think like you know it's Fireball, it's classic. Um, in I think in the final game, Kuroda actually used Arcslogger, which uh, which if any of you don't know, it was a red rare from Mirrodin. It costs uh, I believe it cost five. It was like. I think it was two red and three. Yeah, two red and three. I think it was a 4-4. But you could remove the top ten cards of your library from the game to deal two damage to target creature or player, which kind of sounds terrible. I think when I first saw it, I was like, why would I want to do that? Like, I've only got 60 cards in my deck. I can't even, you know... It's like, whoa, like, two damage for ten cards? Like, this is going to be terrible. I can't even activate the ability that many times. But it was actually a good card because... For a red deck, that could just get you down into burn range, and you know, you could, it didn't matter removing forty cards from your library to deal the last eight damage. Um, once it hit play, you didn't even need to attack with it, but you certainly could. Right. He, he pretty much had haste because of the ability to uh, to you to remove the uh, the cards from your library. That was it wasn't an activated you know it wasn't a, a activated ability that required tapping, so you could just do it as soon as it. Uh, hit the board. I think, you, did you have to pay a red? For oh, it one red. Yeah. Right, so you needed the mana for it, but, um... I mean, for, for, for a time in Magic that was considered, like, the bane of, of standard, like, it seems like a fairly diverse, you know, it's as diverse or more so than it is now. Yeah, that's a good point. You know? Um... So the top eight for the, uh, 2004 Pro Tour Kobe... Tournament. Um, we have a big red list, a mono red control list, another big red list, one affinity, Gabriel Nassif playing 12 post, um, mono red control, Anan Go, which is Masashiro Kuroda's deck. I'm not really sure what that means, but it was uh, pretty much a big red deck. Um, another affinity list. So it looks like it was mostly mono red, which seems so strange for a time when. You know, when Affinity was supposedly dominating, you have a Pro Tour Top 8 made up of two Affinity decks, one Tooth and Nail deck, and then the rest are somehow red. Arcslogger was a 4-5 for 5. Yes, it was a 4-5, and you could pay a red to remove the top 10 cards of your library from the game, and Arcslogger deals 2 damage to target creature or player. 
you know, you have these these decks. It's like Arc Sloggers and uh, Solemn Simulacrums and, uh, I mean... Slith Firewalker. Slith Firewalker, Furnace Dragon. Kind of interesting to me that that they were dominating this particular tournament when Affinity was supposedly the big man on campus, you know? Yeah. Yelger Vigersma was also in that tournament, uh, in that top eight, playing Affinity. I mean, look at these cards that were legal. Um, all the artifact lands, Arcbound Ravager, Disciple of the Vault, Ether Vial, Skull Clamp. Like, Skull Clamp was legal at this point. Wow. It's nuts. For those of you who don't know what Skull Clamp does, it was uh, an equipment that cost one to play um, and one to equip. Equipped creature gets plus one, minus one. Whenever equipped creature is put into a graveyard, draw two cards. So people would basically pay one, equip it to, like, an X one, something that had one toughness, uh, just you know, basically sacrificing a creature, but to draw two cards. You could put it on something that was bigger, and it was almost like your opponent didn't want to kill it because you're just going to draw something. You know, you get to draw two cards. So I mean, and that was legal at the time. So you know, affinity apparently was not that bad. I'll just have to say that for <laughs> based on this information. Based on this top eight, at least it was not. It was not as bad as Jund. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> you want to move on? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we got we got these things. Oh yeah. Well, first I wanted to just quickly talk about Mythic. Oh yeah, because, yeah. Um, you've been playing it. Yeah, I've been playing Mythic lately. Um, and tell them what Mythic is. Mythic is a deck. It's by Zvi Malshowitz, and um, I played it at a local tournament. Uh, just recently and won the tournament, which is the first time I've won a tournament outside of Amazing Spiral, which is kind of cool. Yeah. One, um, we split the top prize and we just played for the win, and I won. Um, so basically, I went five o two. My draws were against Eldrazi Green and against Jund, and um, the decks I beat were Mono Red, uh, Red Deck wins twice. Uh, same guy. Sorry, Elton. Let's see. Oh, yeah, well, if it, for those of you who don't know, the deck runs, like, uh, expensive cards. Yeah, it's like four Birds of Paradise, four uh, Noble Hierarch, four Rocks War Monk, four Rafika the Many, four Baneslayer Three Angel. Rafika the Many. Three Rafika the Many, sorry. I've just got that four. Right, right, right. Finest Hour. Three Finest Hours. Um, Zvi's version runs... Two Baloths and one Two, Thornling. Like Ravenous Baloth? Rampaging Baloth. Leatherback Baloth? It runs eight Leatherback Baloths. <laughs> um, but don't tell anyone. Um, it runs Manlands Galore. It runs the Stirring Wildwoods and Celestial Colonnades. Um, out of the sideboard, it runs Negates and Bant Charms and Jace and Admonition Jace, Angel. Jace Bellerin? Yeah, Jace, Jace Bellerin. It runs the book promo version of Jace Bellerin only. <laughs> um, but uh, so, anyway. No, for serious, it's Jace the Mind Skull. It is. I, I ran this deck and the I made no changes to the main deck or sideboards from Zvi's list other than I only have three Bane Slayers. So I put an Iona in there just for the hell of it. Was it, it, only, it only came up once, right? came up once, but it was extremely relevant. So... <laughs> you tell that story. Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to tell that story. So anyway, round one, I beat Mono Red. Game... Uh, round... I beat Mono Red 2-0. Round two, I played against Eldrazi Green. Game one, 
he got out his monument and I couldn't deal with it. So, uh, I was at 43 life. He was at 10 and I scooped, uh, because I was just like prolonging the inevitable and wanted to try to get a match in. Um, so we went to game two and I won game two game three. We went to time and this is an interesting situation. So he was at, I was at 18 life and he was at however much life he was at. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's on turn four, right? Of extra turns because we went to time, mm -hmm. which is why I wanted to keep going on the match. Right, he gets to turn four of extra t of extra of uh, of extra turns, mm -hmm. and um, he had the win on the board. Um, he had, I'm guessing, like two insect tokens from Ant Queen, mm -hmm. Ant Queen, um, three Nissa's Chosen, and an Elvish Arch Druid. Okay? And Eldrazi Monument out. So his upkeep, he sacrifices one of the two insect tokens. The insect token he had out had a counter from Oren Reef the Vastwood. I had an Admonition Angel. was the only thing I had out that could block his team. Mm -hmm. So he goes, I'll attack with these guys, and turns everyone but the Archdruid sideways. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I go, okay. Block the Ant Queen with the Admonition Angel. Mm -hmm. Admonition Angel dies. And I'll take 15. I'll go to three. And he's like, oh, I wasn't done declaring all my attackers. And the judge was like standing right there. And I look up at the guy and he's like, you let it go through to blockers and damage. Like, <laughs> you got to You got to live with it. Also, I'm going to activate my he was, man lab. But he was pissed him. off. And I mean, I understand. I mean, like he was, I'm sure he was more mad at himself. Right. Than mad at me. Um, what but, the heck are you mad at I me mean, for? Like, literally, block? literally, he could have turned the archdruid sideways, and since he had the monument out, it would have dealt that last three points. Right. But he held it back. So, you know, I think that's a, there's a lesson to be learned there, you know? Yeah. I, Don't maybe he just didn't realize he held it let, back. Let your opponent win. I mean, let yeah. your opponent win or lose. Like, don't let them, don't tell them they won. Don't give them the win if you don't have to, you know? Yeah. Like... Let, let them show you the win sometimes. I mean, there are some times when it's inevitable and you just don't want to drag the thing right. out. But in situations like that, you know, maybe he doesn't see the win. Sometimes people won't see the win even if they have it on the board. That's so, absolutely true. And, and I've had, been in situations like that myself where I'm like, oh, that's right, I have a man land. <laughs> you know, like I completely forget. Yeah. Because like, I've been using this as land all game and now it's a man land. Like, things like that. That's just a, an example. You know, there's situations where you don't see it, where your opponent goes, you're, they're sitting there thinking, oh, God, he can just attack and kill me right here. But if, if you don't say anything, that makes that person have to realize that, too. Right. And maybe most of the time they will, but just let them realize it. And right. that's, you know, force it out of them, you know? Exactly. So then, so going on from there... Round three, I played against Tim, and Tim was running his uh, black... I wish I knew the name of the dragon uh, that is the black, white, red dragon from, like, Plane, oh, right. Planar Chaos. Right, so I want to call the fun. deck that dragon name. There we go. So I was playing against Tim's uh, Oros... Oros uh, control. Yeah, I guess I, not Boros, but Oros. <laughs> Barely Oros. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So his Oros control, red, white, and black, and well, it, it's, yeah, just Oros, Oros is a dragon from Planar Chaos, right? And uh, 
Oros is... It's just a black, red, white colored dragon. That's what. Right. That's where you're getting that from, because I just want people to know what you're talking about. Right, of course. He was playing that deck, and he had a Johnny Vengeance, and the deck's interesting. I really like his deck. Uh, mm-hmm. The only problem was he was just having trouble with mana. I mean, like, he could have uh, wrathed me once or twice with Day of Judgment, but he didn't have the double white. For, like, until it was way too late. You know what I mean? Like, until it was easy for me to recover. Um, but, basically, I wound up winning that match 2-0. And then um, went into round four and played against Jund. And uh, w- lost game one. Game two went all the way to time. It was a ridiculous match. I went Baneslayer, went Doomblade. Baneslayer, Doomblade. Baneslayer, Malakir, Bloodwitch. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, uh... We went all the way to ta- time, and I wound up winning on turn five of extra turns with a noble hierarch. I was attacking in with him as a four-five, and then an eight-nine, like every turn, and like wound up just clearing his whole board with a hierarch. That's and awesome. the last swing, my second attack of the turn, I got in for eight, and he was like at like two life or something. I was joking with everyone, like, all I need to do is top deck the bolt and I win. I gotta top deck the bolt. <laughs> but there was no bolt. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. No. Um, so anyway, I went two oh two, which put me in the top eight. Actually, I was, like, ranked second out of that, I thought, which I thought was odd, like, with, with two, two draws. draws. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I mean, it was only a field of 15, mm. so it wasn't a huge tournament, but, like, and by the time we cut the top eight, there were only 11 people left, so it was kind of hilarious. Anyway, um, top eight, I played against the same mono red deck and wound up beating him 2-0 again. Um, top four, I played against the deck. It was like, I don't, I've never looked at the deck. I'm guessing it's a deck. You know what I mean? I'm guessing mm-hmm. it wasn't a rogue deck mm-hmm. or it's rogue-ish, I guess. But it's like an Esper deck mm-hmm. that, uh, is running Polymorph and it goes Polymorph and Diona and it runs the Colney Gardens so it can play a plan on turn one and then drop right. the Polymorph pretty consistently on turn four. Um, so what happens in game one is, uh, I drop a Baneslayer or something and he polymorphs it and he polymorphs it into like, I don't know if it was Rafik or if it was like uh, <laughs> Knight of the Reliquary or something. So anyway, he polymorphs it into that. And then, it, cause what happened was he drawn most of his polymorph targets. Yeah. Um, so then he polymorphs Rafik mm-hmm. and I just flip over Iona and, like, Rob was sitting right there eating his lunch, and Rob was like, oh, going rogue. He was like, <laughs> Rob was like, going rogue. Like, Rob was really excited about that. Like, he thought it was hilarious. Um, but anyway, the dude just scooped up his cards. And the funny thing is, I had no idea what deck he was playing. I would have not known what color to name. Right, I mean, only blue. You've seen blue? Uh, I saw blue. I mean, I almost thought of naming green because I thought he might have been playing green because of the Colney Gardens. Oh, right, yeah. I had no idea, but he scooped his cards up. So I was like, great. And then I wound up winning game two. Um, I just think it's funny because Polymorph is just... It seems like Mythic is a deck. You don't want to be playing Polymorph on Mythic's creatures because it's like, okay, fine, my Baneslayer Angel is now a Rafik. Like, that... Did that help you very much? Like, right. you know, or my Rafik is now a Rock's War Monk. Like, or that's Iona. still, or I'm, yeah, in but, that case. Yeah, so anyway, so I won that one 2-0. And then in the final, I played against Jund. And it was really nice to be able to, like, 
sit down and play the match out. Without time. Honestly. Without time, because we both wind up stalemating like crazy. Um, so I actually wound up squeaking that one out, too. I think I wound up attacking in with, like, I think I wound up winning with, like, Celestial Colonnade or something like that. Yeah, um, see, that that's what makes the deck. Like, if, uh, for those of you, I know you just, we just kind of ran down the deck, but... There's a deck tech on it, a video deck tech from Pro Tour San Diego coverage. Yeah. If yeah, if you go to the the Daily MTG, look up the Pro Tour San Diego coverage and check out um, the deck tech with its V Malshowitz. Or you can go to YouTube.com/slash/WizardsMTG. It's mm. on there too. Um, That's the Wizards of the Coast YouTube channel, um, where he kind of explains the deck and and the manlands are really what made the deck. It's got Lotus Cobras in it. We, which I can't remember if we mentioned that yet. Maybe you no. Know. Um, you know, he was saying about how he kind of built the deck before World Wake, or had it in mind, and it was, um, it was like you play all this mana and you kind of run out of gas. Like, you want, you want to run a lot of lands so that you make sure that, like, Lotus Cobra, actually, you can use its ability, you can use it for more than, like, a, a 2-1, you know, <laughs> it's, right. it's just sitting there, and, um, but, uh, running all that land pre-World Wake kind of left you in situations where you're just top-decking land and have nothing to do with the mana. So the man lands, he said, you know, as soon as he saw Celestial Colonnade, he he started building the deck again, and he he didn't even know what the green-white man land was going to do, but he had marked it off in the deck. Whatever the green man land is, it's going in there. Because then, now these lands are spells. They're creatures that you can attack with. So, you know, you're top-decking land, then it's like land that attacks, or it's land that activates my other land to attack. You know, you you've got options and that is really what makes this deck like so amazingly strong like right. it really like i built it uh at the same time joe built it although he took it to a tournament and i just sat there gold fishing with it but it it's the bant deck that i always wanted like back when yeah back exactly. when shards of alara was like coming out and it was like oh bant this seems like a cool shard i did build the um the finest hour list from uh from last summer that tommy ashton won a, a ptq with but that one, I felt like it, it just didn't feel right to me. Obviously, it was a winning deck; it was a good deck. But I just, it, I didn't, I didn't like it that much. But Mythic was, you know, totally a different experience because it just feels like every turn you're just, if you don't have something ridiculous on the board, you've got something ridiculous in your hand to put on the board. And even if you're sitting there swinging with colonnades and wildwoods, it's like I'm just gonna sit here and draw all this awesome stuff and. Attack you with my man lands until you can do something, and then I'm gonna drop a Bane Slayer Angel or something. It's just, it's ridiculous, and it's so, it just feels so powerful. It's such a strong deck. It's such a fun deck to play. Um, I just had a good time all day. I was talking to a certain special someone on on the internet the night before this tournament, and I said to her, I was like, well, I can't stay up too late. I've got a tournament to win tomorrow. And I wasn't kidding. I, I was kind of serious. Um, so what happened was basically I put Mythic together at 7 a.m. Sunday morning with no sleep. I had woken up 7 a.m. the day before um, to go down to the Baltimore Open, and uh, which Elton did make top eight with the same mono red deck, which is pretty awesome. Uh, believe in the power of the stone idol trap, my friends. Mm -hmm. That is the lesson we learn here. Um, so I, you know, I'm at this tournament with 20, 20, being up for over 24 hours, play testing the deck for the first time in Barnes and Noble. Tim's like, I'll attack you with a blood gas. Joe, Joe, wake up. 
Like, I was literally sleeping, like, falling asleep, playtesting Sunday morning. He's like, we gotta go get you some caffeine right now, dude, or you're not gonna make it through this tournament. So, like, we went down to the 7-Eleven, and I got a 24-ounce resealable can of Monster, which actually was relevant because it fell off the table at one point. Um... So how to win a tournament? Fueled by Monster. <laughs> Stay up all night, build your deck at 7 a.m., and then just drink energy drink. Play test it once or twice. Yeah. Fall asleep during the second game. Uh, <laughs> it was interesting. There was a point to all this. Oh, so I was like, oh man, this energy drink's expensive. That's okay, I'll have more money later when I win the tournament. That's what I actually it's said. totally about your mindset. I was just like so in a mindset to win that day. I don't know why. It might have been some delirium that made me believe I could win. But uh, hey, it worked, so kick ass, you know? Yeah. Like, um, but it was, it's a great deck. I mean, like, literally, I mean, like, playing it with no practice. Like, I had been studying the deck, you know, like... I got to watch the top four match. It was basically Mythic on Mythic, actually, was the top four match at the Baltimore Open. Oh, wow. Um, And so I got to really watch the deck run. Since I was judging, I was sitting there watching the entire match, you know? Probably learned something. So it was cool to, like, you know, I got to watch the deck in action. And I I mean, I decided before that event that I really wanted it. But then while I was there, I was like, you know what? I'm getting the high arcs. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to get them. And I did. So I got all the cards I needed except for one Baneslayer Angel. And I'm actually... I've decided that I'm... Well, right now I'm just running Battle Grace Angel as my fourth Baneslayer because it's one other way to give something some unexpected lifelink. Because, um, you know, you drop a Baneslayer, you're going to wait a turn to make that life point swing. Whereas if I have a Battle Grace Angel and then Noble High Arc, I can come right in for two... Lo- you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if I need that little swing... Um, but I mean, also, it's just because I don't have the fourth Bane Slayer. Right. If I had it, the Battle Grace would come out in a heartbeat. But uh, so it is. Um, but it's a cool deck, and I'm pretty sure that barring any sort of ridiculousness from uh, from Rise of the Eldrazi, I'm going to be running the same deck at the Grand Prix uh, in May. Um, and frankly, I fully expect to make day two with the damn list. I mean, I expect... If you keep playing it and you, have, I think, you know the deck. Well, I, 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 want, I want to win the damn Grand Prix with it. I'm not even going to lie. I mean, why set your goals any lower than winning the whole damn thing, you know? Yeah. It's in my backyard. You know, like, we got to have some hometown flavor going on there. So, so let's, take, uh, let's take Mythic to the top. Um, now, the only, now, I have made some changes to the deck. Nothing severe. I pretty much kept the sideboard the way it is. Um, I noticed myself siding out the Thornling and the two Bailoths every match. And I was like, why are these in the deck? Like, I mean, like, yeah, I understand why they're in the deck, but I went ahead and threw three Elspeths in the deck in their place because Elspeth is just another way to throw a big-ass Knight of the Reliquary in the air. Because, um, I mean, as that was one of the things I found playing against Jund was they got this, they got this ground patrol, you know, and it's like... They're just going to be chump, 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 taking care of, you know, any severe swings and damage. So I figure I throw the knight up and swing with him. It's, it's you know, fairly tough to recover from. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I look at it. And, and also, you know, it does handle more wrath effects. It just makes the deck that much more resilient to removal uh, while still not having any removal in the deck itself. Um, Enough tooting my own horn, but uh, it was fun to see a 51-point jump in my DCI rating in one week. Let's move on, shall we? Okay. One of the other uh, 
headlines. Of course, it's old news now, but we had some Rise of the Eldrazi spoilers come about. Like, we had them the a little early. Spoilers, but, yeah, yeah, the pooled spoilers. Uh, it was six cards. They uh, We weren't allowed to post them until the 15th, which was last Monday. Um, and, of course, we recorded our episode almost two weeks ago, so we couldn't talk about them last time. But um, we figured we'd at least give them, give them a mention now. You've probably all seen them, and... Uh, formed your own opinions, but uh, yeah. I want to talk about Wally Mnemonic. Nice. Actually, that's a. Uh, I, I posted these um, on my blog, uh, affinityforislands.com. Plug. And um, and uh, oh know, man, and we got we got mentioned on the uh, mothership again because you posted them on your blog. We did. We got mentioned on the mothership again, which is pretty cool. It's a second time for us. Yeah. Pretty awesome. If you want to take a look at the cards, if you haven't seen them already, you can check out affinityforislands.com. But um, the, the, I'm just going to name the cards here, and then we'll talk about the ones that we find interesting. Sound mm-hmm. good? Um, we have Pathraiser of Ulamog, who is a colorless Eldrazi. It's an uncommon, which is kind of notable, but we'll get there. Um, Mammoth Umbra, which was an, a white aura. Um, Mnemonic Wall. Corpse Hatch. Valakit Firebore. And Praise Vengeance. My favorite card... Out of this list is Mnemonic Wall. Big surprise warning. It's the blue card. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think it really is the most powerful card out of all the ones that were spoiled, too. Yeah, so. well, I mean, when I first read these, and I feel like this, when we got the uh, World Wake pooled spoilers, I felt the same way, where I was just like, uh, whatever. You know, they're, they're commons and uncommons, there's nothing that great. But, like, when I sat down to actually write about them, I started kind of thinking a little more, and, um, I compared Mnemonic Wall to Eternal Witness. Um, for those of you who don't know, Mnemonic Wall is an 0-4 wall uh, for 4 and a blue. It's common. It's a common. Uh, it has Defender. When Mnemonic Wall enters the battlefield, you may return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. So, um, I mean, it's not anything extremely powerful, but I think it's pretty relevant. Um, the fact that you can, in something like Blue-White Control... Play uh, Day of Judgment on turn three or four, three with a chalice, with overflowing chalice, um, and just wipe the board, and then follow it up with Mnemonic Wall, and basically force your opponent to overextend right into the Day of Judgment again, which you you know you just pick back up right out of your graveyard. Um, I mean, you you've got an O four that can kind of block most of the relevant creatures in standard. Um, I mean, a good amount of them. So mm-hmm. they're going to have to play something. They're going to have to play two creatures. You know, and already, like, that's a, that's a two-for-one, because you're using the same Day of Judgment, even though you're killing your own Mnemonic Wall if you need to play it. Right. Uh, you've, Mnemonic Wall's become the Day of Judgment, you know what I mean? It's, right. I mean, just that interaction is exciting to me. Seems like it goes pretty well with Perimeter Captain in a blue-white deck. That's true, too, um, yeah. Seems like it goes uh, pretty well with, if you want to play it, say you, you, do, you get a Chalice out at some point... Play a Jace on turn four, um, or on turn three. Mm-hmm. You play this bad boy on turn five to bring a path to exile back, and then just use the path right away. You seem to have pretty good board control at that point. You know what I mean? You're yeah. like, you're like, okay, you know, here's my wall, here's my path for your guy that can kill the wall, and I've got Jace to bounce something else. Like, I mean, there seems to be a yeah, it, it's pretty. Uh... Pretty good position there. I mean, and the fact that he he protects Jace just by himself. Yep. You know, I mean, I think this card is actually something to consider when uh, it, it will be something to consider for blue decks or for control decks 
um, just for the fact that it can get back relevant sorceries and instants uh, for you to use again. And, and the other thing is, um, so it's a card that kind of replaces itself, and it get, gets back a card you've already used in the case of something like Day of Judgment, or Mindspring, or Martial Coup, you're getting back a card that was an X for one already. So now you're getting back an X for one. It's just like the the card advantage is just exponential, being able to reuse an X for one. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you use one card, say Mindspring, to draw several, play a mnemonic wall, get the Mindspring back, draw more again. You've used... Mm -hmm. Basically, two cards, a one Mindspring and one Mnemonic Wall, and, you know, you've drawn however many. I think that's that's my favorite of the pulled spoilers. Um, do you have another favorite, or did you want to mention No, I definitely think that that is my uh, overall favorite. Although, I mean, if we want to go on about some of the new sort of things that are going on in, yeah. uh, in Zendikar. First of all, actually, I wanted to talk about the Eldrazi. Okay, um, go for it, yeah. So we've got Pathraiser of Ulamog, right? Pathraiser of Ulamog is a 9-9 Eldrazi creature. He's colorless, costs 11 mana. He is an uncommon. He has, so this is the first uncommon Eldrazi we've seen, which is interesting. Yep. He's got Annihilator 3, um, which whenever this creature attacks, defending player sacrifices 3 permanents. That's whenever it attacks. So mm -hmm. that's before any combat damage is dealt. Pathraiser of Ulamog can't be blocked except by three or more creatures. So they're pretty much... The way that's looking is it's pretty much forcing your opponents to sacrifice lands. Yep. Um, or other, you know, non-creature things if they don't want to have to deal with nine damage to their face when right. it attacks. Um, so get your path to exiles. Next I wanted to actually... Because, like, you know, 11 mana for a 9-9. Nine, nine, I mean, that's crazy. How do you get something that big into play? Well... We have something like Corpse Hatch, which is a sign of things to come, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Costs two black and three. It's a sorcery, another uncommon. Destroy target non-black creature. Put two zero one colorless Eldrazi spawn creature tokens onto the battlefield. They have sacrifice this creature. Add one colorless to your mana pool. So that's interesting. Um, you just made me think of something. You could build a blue-black polymorph deck. Using Corpse Hatch to uh, to give yourself more polymorph targets, and then you just polymorph into an Eldrazi. That's I mean, certainly true. Something like Pathraiser. Kozilek has the uh, the bonus, you know, when, you, when cast you cast him, you draw four cards. So you wouldn't get that if you polymorphed into it, but you would have quite a threat on the board. <laughs> oh, I definitely think yeah, now right. is the time to get your polymorphs anyway, because right. something relevant is definitely going to be worked out with polymorph. and. Yeah huge Eldrazi creatures. <laughs> I, I don't see how that... I don't know. I don't see how that couldn't be awesome, like, given the right cards to make it work. Right, um, right. It seems like Mnemonic Wall wouldn't... Well, you would have... You'd, you'd have to have it in your deck. You could polymorph into the wall. Yeah, but you at worst, you polymorph into the wall, you get back the polymorph. <laughs> like, ah, I'll just take that back again. That's true, because by the time the uh, polymorph resolves, it'll be in the graveyard, and w when that ability goes on the stack, right. the polymorph's in your graveyard, you bring right. it back. Right. So, oh, Jesus. That's could, so Could stupid. work, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
all, all you have in your deck are mnemonic walls and Eldrazi and, you know, Iona or something. Stupid. <laughs> now, we were thinking earlier, I mean, Joe said it, and it's definitely something that I've thought of, um, was about Iona. Like, how relevant is she going to be with all these colorless spells? So, just just something to consider, those of you playing Iona already. Yeah, so get your polymorphs and, uh, I guess... Ditch your Ionas. <laughs> Trade Iona high while you still can, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I mean if we've got an artifact set coming up in the fall, too, I mean, like... Yeah. Uh, and Oh, that's. I guess we should uh, at oh, least yeah, make right. mention of that briefly. I'm sure anyone who doesn't live under a rock has heard, but some of you might live under rocks, and I'm glad you get the internet under said rocks. But um, <laughs> uh, Wizards has uh, made us all aware, finally, that finally now we are aware <laughs> that um, the fall big set will be called Scars of Mirrodin. And um, we've gotten the... Uh, the expansion symbol and uh, all that stuff. So we're going back to the Mirrodin universe. Yeah. Get your Thada Adels. Um, your, your Thada Adels um, Stoneforge Mystic is only what six bucks right now. Seven, I think. S- six or seven dollars. It seems like um, they could be pretty. They could be the next Knight of the Reliquary. They could be. I mean, we we saw Knight of the Reliquary. We were like, wow, this is a cool card. It dropped down to like two bucks. I did trade a. Um, Telemann performance mm-hmm. for a foil. For a foil Knight of the Reliquary, right. And this was actually not that bad of a trade at the time. <laughs> Except now, Knight of the Reliquary. Foil is like 25 and non-foil is 18. Shit, man. But yeah, that's, um, that's what I'm saying. Like Stoneforge Mystic was kind of a sleeper. It definitely is not a sleeper anymore. But at 6 or 7 bucks, if we've got a set coming up that's you know, artifact-based, which... Mirrodin was artifact-based, so you just got to assume that's going to be a heavy part of this fall set. Um, if it's artifact-based, that probably means more equipment, and that uh, that makes Stoneforge Mystic all the more relevant. So, you know, get them, get them while you can. I mean, don't, maybe don't, you know, go crazy for, you know, trying to get them, but if you can pick them up, pick them up. Seriously. So I think... Those are the main ones I really want to talk about, but we also should probably explain oh, these two new. Yeah, I want to bring this up, and so uh, first we have. Um, well, did you want to bring that up? I, I, I have a lot to say. Okay, okay well, let me say the. Yeah, I'll do Mammoth Umber then, because um, I know I, I have not. I don't have much to say about that other about rebound. Okay. So, Mammoth Umbra is an enchantment. It's an aura. It costs a white and four. It's a. Is it a common? I can't read it. See it from where. Is it uncommon? It's uncommon, yeah. Okay. Enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus three, plus three, and has vigilance. And it has an ability called Totem Armor, which is a terrible name for an ability. But anyway, <laughs> it really I, don't, is, yeah. I, I really don't. I mean, it's the ability is awesome and fairly relevant. Yeah. If enchanted creature would be destroyed, instead, remove all damage from it and destroy this aura. So, so I think that's definitely going to be a relevant ability. Let's see if it gets play, like gets put on a more standard relevant card. I'm going to put Mammoth Umbra on your old Miststalker and EDH. <laughs> I know you are. That's because you're a jerk. <laughs> that's true. So I'm like, I want to win. You're I don't s- care about you guys having fun. You're a spike. I mean, <laughs> I'll never see you play in a group hug deck in EDH. But anyway... <laughs> We'll leave it to, like, MTG Radio to talk more about EDH because right, they right. really do the best job about that. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of which, they might have us on a podcast coming up fairly right. soon. We will certainly let you know as soon as we know. Right. Still waiting for the word, Trevor. Get on it. Um, <laughs> so, lastly, we, I, about the uh, spoilers. Um, Praise Vengeance. 
which is not that interesting of a card in itself, um, but it could have interesting applications. Same with um, with totem armor. Right. You know, what else are we going to seed this on? Um, Praise Vengeance is an instant for one green. Target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. It's a rebound. If you cast this spell from your hand, exile it as it resolves. At the beginning of your next upkeep, you may cast this card from exile without paying its mana cost. So then it goes to your graveyard. Right. And then you can bring it back with Mnemonic Wall. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, wait a minute. Exile it as it resolves, and then you may cast this card from exile. It, yeah, does it go? It, yeah. does, it does go to the graveyard. I didn't really think about it after that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the thing, I mean, so basically, you know, I have my creature, I'm going to pump it, and, you know, attack you, and then, at, what is it, the beginning of my next upkeep, you know, I can do the same thing. I can ca- I just get it for free. It's a little extra bonus. Right. Um, the, the thing that I hope, I want to see what they do with this on a blue card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I kind of designed my own, ver- my dream version of what, you know, what I hope it would be. Of course... It, some people might think this is too strong, but I called it Think Again, uh, kind of harkening back to Think Twice from uh, Time Spiral Block. But it's uh, for two blue and one, an instant, it says draw a card. And it has rebound. So, like, this this would basically be the one mode of Esper Charm that I love. You know, like, at the end of your turn, I'm going to cast this, I'm going to draw a card. The turn ends, I untap during my upkeep, I get to draw another card. So it's basically like draw two cards at instant speed, for three, which I, I feel like that's fairly costed, and I I am hoping that that they print something like this. Oh, they will, but it'll cost five. Yeah, it'll be yeah exactly. It'll be like, come on, three so, blue and three more. Right. Yeah. Draw Cry- half a card. Cryptic command, man. All right, three blue and one. And like, so who knows? I I thought this was fairly costed, but I am biased towards blue. But I don't know. Draw two cards for three mana. It's it's in the standard right now as an as Esper charm. So I don't see that it's that disgusting. Um, so uh, so that's it. And then Valakut Firebore is eh. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the thing with Valakut Firebore is a 1-7 for uh, 4 and 1 red. Creature, elemental boar, whenever it attacks, switch its power and toughness until end of turn. Um, it's a 7-1 for 5, if you think of it that way. And when it's not attacking, it's a hell of a wall. That's true. No, it's but, definitely a cool wall. Um, so then the other card... Yeah, so anyway... We've, so we, we've talked about um, all, all, all six spoilers. Um, There's also Kozilek. Can you believe he costs less than Pathraiser of Ulamog? Right, that's one thing that's kind of notable is Kozilek actually costs 10 and Pathraiser of Ulamog costs 11. And he's a 12-12 and the Pathraiser only a 9-9. So obviously it's... A bigger Annihilator. It's quite... Yeah, everything's better. Kozilek is, is a... Better he's in every way, except, mythic that, he, except that he's legendary. Right. And he can't be rised from the grave. Right. Risen from the grave. <laughs> I think Kozilek is, like, awesome. But he's, at the moment... I'm in a star city, let's see. Let's check out the Kozilek pre-order price. Pre-order Kozilek Butcher of Truth today. I think I might, but he's $30. Well, that's <laughs> higher than the... That's lower than the 50 he was when I saw it last. Yeah, that's... I just... I can't believe it. I guess they're just trying to cover their asses because with Jace, I think they all got burned. A lot of sellers, you know, they had them 15, 20, and they were pre... People were buying the pre-orders, and then suddenly they were buying them for, like, 35 bucks. Like, we need Jace back. 
we Jace back so we can sell them at sixty. You know, so here they're they're sending people like me four Jaces for eighty dollars, and they're buying four Jaces back. You know, for a hundred what hundred and forty dollars. So it's just you know they're I think they lost a lot of money because they needed the Jaces. They wanted the Jaces to be able to sell at a higher price. So I think they're covering their asses with Kozilek because he's the only mythic we've seen so far. I don't think he's worth 30 bucks, but I guess we'll find out. I could be totally wrong. It just seems to me that Jace was one thing. Somebody, I, I tweeted about this, like saying, I don't think he's worth that. And somebody said, um, did you feel that way about Jace? And like, absolutely not. Because Jace was immediately, obviously powerful and could go in a deck and he cost six mana less <laughs> than Kozilek. True. Kozilek costs 10 mana. Okay, you have uh, what, Eye of Ugin out? He costs, what, eight now? But the Eye of Ugin is a land, so that counts as a land drop. There's a rumored uh, land that adds two to your mana pool, to, um, but you can only use it on Eldrazi spells. So yeah, now he costs six mana, but you need those other two lands out. That's eight land drops. Right, so, so you're going to use that, you're going to play him, and I'm going to go, okay, I'll use my Jace to bounce him. And... Yeah, I mean, go ahead and draw four more cards, I guess. But, like, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like, he's... I'm not saying he's not powerful, and I think they're designing the set around these guys, so they're going to have ways to get them out early. Um, but he's still... He, I mean, he's no Jace, the Mind Sculptor. Mm -mm. And so I, I don't think that he's worth the 30 bucks he's going for right now. But uh, Get your paths. <laughs> yeah. Path to exile. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't even put him in the graveyard, which would trigger his other ability. I really hope they reprint Path in M10. Me too. Yeah, M11. Me too. And Tarmogoyf. You know, I think that given the uh, like the the comp the complexity of like I hit that card with a bolt and now it's out of bolt range. I don't think they would ever put Tarmogoyf in a core set. You know what I mean? Just because like, so you got a land and a creature a in the graveyard, and then they play a Tarmogoyf and it's a two three, and you're like, I'll bolt it. Okay, it's a three four. It's like what? Yeah. Why? <laughs> no, but I killed it. It's like no, but it checks that. Con you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you're right. I don't think it would be in a core set. I but think it could go. Would. It could definitely go in like Rise of the Eldrazi or Scars of Mirrodin or yep. something. You know, who knows? I hope they reprint it at some point soon. So I hope they reprint Mana Drain in Rise of the Eldrazi. Frankly, I yeah, hope they, they reprint every card that isn't in the reserve list. Yeah, just to tick everybody off. <laughs> I hope they reprint every card that isn't on the reserve list, like in in like core sets. So, um, oh, you want to talk about the? the yes, Harry's I do. Thing? So, so briefly, um, I was playing against my buddy Gary the other day, and Gary is. Uh, the resident rogue deck builder now that I've kind of given up the title uh, in favor of playing other people's decks. Uh, uh, so Gary, the one thing that Gary does with his rogue decks that I never used to do is actually sometimes win. Uh, so anyway, Gary played me with this deck the other day that I thought was fascinating. Um, I don't think, I don't remember if he actually beat Mythic with it, but it's such a cool concept that it has to be mentioned here. So it's a black and red deck, right? Basically what he does is it's like fairly mono-red burn for the most part. It splashes black for things. I'm pretty sure he's got Terminates in there. I'm pretty sure that he had Blightning in there and things like that. Mm -hmm. So what he does is he beats you down, he beats you down, you know, till something he's about to get some, like, till someone sweeps or does something. And then he goes end of turn, he plays Ad Nauseam, right? And he just flips cards over. Until he gets down to like four life, basically out of bolt range. Right, right. Right. He gets himself down to like four life. 
He draws like 20 cards, three of which are typically two Death Shadow and a Goblin Bushwhacker. <laughs> and then on his turn, he'll go Death Shadow, Death Shadow, Kick Bushwhacker, Swing for, what's that, 20? Well, you're, well if, 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 he, if he gets himself down to four life, right. they're 9-9s, nine right, right, right. plus the Bushwhacker, so he swings for 22. Right. <laughs> it's just such a cool deck. Like, it's so <laughs> fun. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know, like, I don't know how viable it is, but I don't think Gary gives a crap about that. Gary just likes to build fun rogue decks, and, like, I mean, this one seems pretty damn strong, so I feel like that interaction, if nobody's really thought much about ad nauseum, uh, to suck your life total down into a lethal swing with, like, a death shadow... Hey, you know, there's an idea for you. But anyway, it's a really cool deck, and um, if I can convince Gary to use the internet um, outside of just his cell phone, maybe I could get him to post a list or something. Uh, If anybody's interested in that, let us know. Um, Did you talk about Chapin's book yet? Not yet. Uh, I figured we could either mention it at the end, but we can mention it right now. Yeah. Um, Today is Monday, March 22nd. Patrick Chapin's Next Level Magic, the updated version, full color, 420-page, physical copy. It starts shipping today. Um, it's $35. Um, or if you bought the ebook last summer, or if you've already bought the ebook, you uh, you get an $8 discount, so it's $27. You know, some people think that's kind of a high price. You you said uh, on the last episode, if it's more than $35, I'm not buying it. You were dead on. It's $35. What do you think about the price of that book? I think the price is great. I mean, like, I think that, I mean, I was saying 35 because I thought 35 was the right price. Right, right. I mean, honestly, like... I just I, think some people think it's uh, it's a little high because they're thinking of something like a... a have you seen what the book looks like? Right, well, I, I'm just saying, like, people... I don't know. It's not hardcover. I'm just trying to say, like, people... Uh, I think people are looking at it like, I go to Barnes & Nobles and I can buy a hardcover book for $23 or a... You know, a soft cover book, those are like $15 or $13. Why is this so much? Right, but my my point is that this is a unique book. It's more comparable to like a college course book than, you know, um, Tess of the Durbervilles in trade paperback. Why that's the book that I thought of... (laughs) I don't know, but but no. Yeah. I mean, like the way I look at it is like, I mean, have you seen it? It looks so beautiful, and like, and you're right. It is like kind of like a college textbook in a way. You need to think of it um, that way, yeah. or you've got to think of it as like the holy fucking grail of magic. <laughs> okay, that's what you need to look at this book as. All right, this is like this is the book you need to play better magic. Okay, and if you've got a problem with that, sure. Go to Barnes and Noble and spend twenty three dollars on the new fucking Robert Jordan uh, thousand page novel, and you're not going to get nearly the same information in a thousand pages that you're getting in four hundred and twenty of Patrick Chapin's words. And right. second of all, Robert Jordan doesn't talk about magic; he right, talks so about the Wheel of Time, which is you know something that. Magic has already exhausted ten times over. Do you really want to read ten thousand pages to be like, oh man, this guy just played a lot of magic when he was in college? No. <laughs> Robert no, Jordan sucks. No, think about the return on your investment too. If you win, for example, one tournament just using the knowledge you got in this book, half the time. I mean, how much did you win for that tournament you won? I won forty-five dollars. So you won like forty-five dollars. Yeah. There's an example right there. Like 
if this helps you just win one more tournament that get next to you, you know, 40 bucks, 35 bucks, it's already paid for itself. Right, exactly. I mean, think about it. And two more tournaments. You just get such a return on your investment just from taking this book, reading it, and absorbing it, and practicing the things that it, it talks about in there. Think about, think about everybody. I want all of you to think about limited resources, okay, that podcast, okay? Mm-hmm. How many matches have you won in limited since you started listening to that podcast that you would not have won otherwise because you would have made stupid choices in any other situation prior to listening to that podcast? I can name probably... 10 match wins that I can credit to Marshall and Ryan, okay? Like, I can credit so many match wins to those two guys, like, just putting that mindset in my head of how to be a good limited player, or at least how to be a better, I can't say I'm a good limited player, but I'm certainly better than I was, and I have limited resources to thank for it. I feel like Pat Chapin's Next Level Magic is the same sort of deal. It's like, you're going to look back five years from owning that book and going cover to cover on it and going, wow, I owe Pat Chapin so much money now because of, <laughs> of what, you know, of the, the, you know, just the mindset he gave me or whatever, you know, I just, I think it's such a worthwhile purchase, you know, it's just, I mean, it's, he's got some segments, uh, for like free sample kind of segments of the book on Star City Games. So you can actually read some of it on StarCityGames.com. Um, just to get an idea of the kind of information that's in it. But, I mean, Chapin said it also on the interview on limited resources. Man, we're really plugging them today, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> also, Mike Flores. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> Hi, Mike. <laughs> Flores-level magic. We're going 45 days now with no Mike Flores blog. I'm, like, itching, man. <laughs> Fiending. I'm fiending for some Flores every day. I mean, literally... But anyway, yeah, the, Chapin said on that interview, uh, this is a book you can lend to a friend. He, I mean, just I'm quoting Chapin here, or paraphrasing him anyway, just because it's, you should definitely listen to the interview anyway. But, you know, he said he's trying to uh, help the community. If he wanted to make a lot of money, there are better ways of doing it than, than working as hard as he did on a 420-page book about magic. You know, he, he can get... Uh, that cost a lot of money to print, right? Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a small. It's not like they're like uh, random market. house. Yeah. You know what I mean, like this is a small print company. Right. You know, this is a upstart. You know, independent business. You know, support small businesses. You know, su- support. And, you know, and it took a lot of extra effort for him to get it in color. He said, and so like I certainly appreciate that. Um, it's it's just so much better to actually see a card the way it actually looks rather than in some black and white kind of facsimile of it. You know, it's just it's nice to see the colors of the card. Color is quite relevant in our game. True. You know, so not to say that you couldn't figure out what the black and white image what was are those with, with the yeah, like. with the, the the tree symbol in the corner. Like I don't know what color it is. So anyway, uh, for those of you who haven't already, definitely look into purchasing Patrick Chapin's Next Level Magic. Go to StarCityGames.com. There will be a link in the show notes. It's thirty-five bucks, and it's well worth it. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you gotta pay for shipping, whatever, but it's well worth it. It's it's tax time. Use your tax. Use part of your tax money to pay for it. Don't even, you don't even worry about it. The government gave me money back to buy this book. We gotta um, move on to emails. Moving on to some some emails and voicemails and 
And snail mails. We didn't get any snail mails. Okay, did you you wanted to talk a lot about this. I think uh, I'll let you talk about it. Okay, so this is uh, Yanni Santos, who sent us... First of all, he sent us our first fan art. Um, for those of you who didn't see my tweet about it, he said that... Uh, he says, hey guys, been listening to this show and really digging it. I'm up to episode 9B right now and thought, hey, yo MTG taps fan art. Why not? This is more for Big Head Joe's collection, but regular Head Joe may enjoy it too. Show's badass. Keep up the good work. Yanni. Yes, like the piano guy. And he sent us a picture that he called the Bestial Menace Remix. And for those of you who don't remember, in episode 9... Oh, God, 9G or something? I don't remember. I was talking about Bestial Menace for like seven minutes and about how I think it's hilarious and how I thought it would be great if it was just called Bestiality. And it had um, some dude lurking behind the trees there checking out the snake, the wolf, and the sexy elephant. And uh, so he sent me a picture of uh, the World Weight card Bestial Menace. Uh <laughs> altered to be bestiality. And there is a guy standing behind a tree wearing a wolf shirt checking out the dudes, which is hilarious. And the quote on the card, everything else except for the guy on the card is exactly the same. So the, the flavor text on the card has been changed to my blank reaches blank far keener than yours. Sida Jiraga Hunter. Um, and that's pretty funny. And the blanks are actually censored. It's not, uh, there aren't actually swear words that I'm omitting. Uh, he actually left it blank, which I thought was really funny. Um, so thank you for that. And we definitely have to, um, send him some cool stuff for doing that. We haven't quite decided what cool stuff is, but, um, we're going to send him some cool stuff. So anyway, uh, he went on to send us another email. Actually, it started from him accidentally sending me a, uh, a message that went like this. Dear friend, line break. How are you recently? Line break. I bought a laptop from a website. W I'm not even going to tell you the name of the website. Uh, last week, line break. I've got the product. Its quality is very good, and the price is line break competitive. They also sell phones, TV, PSP, motor, and so on. By the line break way, they import product from Korea and sell new and original line break products. They have good reputation and have many good feedbacks. If line break, you need these products, look at this website. Will be a clever choice. Line break. I am sure you will get many surprise and benefits. Line break. Greetings, line break, E. So I wrote back, dude, you've been hacked, change your password, I just got this email from you. And then he wrote, yeah, sorry about that, changed it yesterday, hopefully it won't happen again. And I wrote, no problem, I've learned over my years, never click random links in people's emails, especially when those email recipients include random shit like Wizards customer support, and the line break HTML is visible in the email. Also, I've learned to never blame senders of said emails. So anyway, he wrote, the weird part is, up until a few weeks ago, I always used line break tags to end my lines, and all of my subject lines had the word Viagra in them, but the I was a one. But yeah, never sign into Google from Barnes & Noble, apparently, that's what I've learned. Um, so then he asked if we could send us, he could send us a deck list. Um, 
so anyway, he just started playing, apparently, uh, just before the World Wake pre-release. So he's actually a fairly new player. I didn't even realize that until uh, reviewing uh, some of what he had said before. Hmm. Um, so he's a new player. Um, he just started, uh, just started playing and wanted to get some advice. So um, he said, this is my mono black vampire list. Let's call it F Twilight for now and why I would censor myself now in the podcast. Lord only knows. Um, I, I built it around Sanguine Bond and Blood Tribute. That combo is just too awesome if you can pull it off. Uh, I've had a lot of mana trouble, so I got some Armillary Spheres. They don't, but they don't seem to be helping too much. So I might just cut them and throw some more swamps in there again. But anyway, it goes on and on and on about the different things that he's talking about wanting to do. So anyway, here's the list that he had. Uh, and you got to remember, this is his very first standard list that he has ever built. So we're going to give him some advice on that deck. Um, so we have two Gatekeeper of Malakir, two Vampire's Bite, two Colostria Highborn, three Diabolic Tutor, two Urge to Feed, three Malakir Blood Witch, three Vampire Nighthawk, three Sanguine Bond, two Tendrils of Corruption, three Spider Silk Net, three Armillary Sphere, three Blood Tribute, three Consumed Spirit, two Gouldraz Vampire, three Feast of Blood, one Demon's Horn, two Child of Night, and 18 Swamps. Sideboard is one Gatekeeper of Malakir, one Kalashtria Highborn, one Basilisk Collar, one Vampire Nighthawk, two Sword Markov, one Armillary Sphere, three Needlebite Trap, one Malakir Blood Witch, two Demon's Horn, and two Purana Marsh. So, um, what could be said about this deck? Okay, so first thing that's glaringly obvious um, that needs to be fixed are the is the mana count. Um, currently, he is running 18 swamps in a 60 card deck, which is too few for some of the fastest aggro decks ever made. Frankly, um, you definitely want to up your swamps to about I'd say what do you think? 24, Joe. Uh, yeah, 24 sounds like a good idea. 24 sounds right, especially since you're dependent on swamp count for something like Tendrils of Corruption or being able to have black mana to spend for Consumed Spirit. Um, so you figure 24 swamps, so you got to add 6 swamps. You need, yeah, you need 6 slots. So he needs to cut 6 cards. First thing I would cut straight away are the Armillary Spheres and, the and Spider Silk Nets. Right. So that takes care of the swamps. So now you've got 24 swamps. Um, secondly... Um, a lot of your sideboard cards seem to be a good fit for the main deck. Right. So, um, I mean, you're onto something, obviously, with some of the stronger cards in the sideboard. Um, so I would take Gatekeeper of Malakir, your third Kalastria Highborn, your fourth Nighthawk, and what the hell, throw the Basilisk Collar in there, too, and while you're at it, throw the two Sword Markovs in there. Yeah, possibly. Um, so... That's six more cards for your main deck, and you know what? Throw the fourth Malakir Blood Witch in there. Um, I, I'm running a vampire deck that's fairly similar. Um, I would say that the things you would want to cut... you got to make seven cuts here. I would say... Um, Two Child of Night? Demons? Well, the, the Child of Night kind of fits, because I don't want to take away the whole spirit of his deck. Right, right, right. You know I what I mean? I don't want to like, just point him straight right, at it. I'm just looking at like, Child of Night is outclassed by Nighthawk, Kalastria Highborn. Gatekeeper of Malachi. I'm just saying, like, those those are upgrades. It's know? true. I, I would say, if, if anything, I would say cut the Ghoul Draz Vampires. Above okay, those. go ahead and go do that. Because yeah. um, that, the I Child agree. of Night has the lifelink, which does fit into the Sanguine Bond right. Good idea. Um, Good idea, which I think is a fine combo. I mean, like, people run that combo a lot. Um, 
So what I would do is I would cut the two Ghouldraz vampires. I would cut two Blood Tribute. Um, mm -hmm. Keep the Sanguine Bonds, keep the Diabolic Tutors. But the way we look at it is if you're trying to combo out, the Sanguine Bond with all of the different ways to gain life in the deck are always going to be relevant. Um, I would say that they're at least slightly relevant. They might be a little expensive. Maybe cut one Sanguine Bond. I, that's what I would say. So let's cut one Sanguine Bond. Let's cut two Blood Tribute. With the Blood Tribute, you're pretty much trying to combo out. So you have the three Diabolic Tutors. Which you can search up the combo with, yeah. Right, so there's no need to keep so many copies of each combo piece in the deck when you have the Tutors to tutor them up. Right. So we've got four slots there filled. Um, next, I would cut a Demon's Horn. So there's five slots. Um, Did you already say you cut the vampire, the cool dress? Yes. Vampire? Okay, what about Vampire's Bite? Vampire's Bite, um, it does add the surprise lifelink. Or consume spirit. Or consume spirit. Um, for now, because we are telling him to cut two blood tributes, let's, let it, let's cut a consume spirit. Keep two. And let's cut... I don't think you need to put the fourth Nighthawk. I mean, the fourth uh, Blood Witch. Probably not. So let's stick with those six cuts. Okay, so here's the list that we have together, right, that we've put together based off of your list. And we're assuming that the reason why you have so many of certain cards is because that's your card collection. So we're not going to sit here and throw too much crazy stuff at you to, like, you know, get your set of Nocturnuses or your new mm -hmm. player. You probably don't have them. That's fine. I actually run a mono-black vampires deck that does not run any Nocturnuses, and I don't ever have any intention of putting Nocturnus in the deck. I don't like the card. So anyway, this is what we've come up with based on what you sent us, um, with one card that you may or may not have, honestly. So three Gatekeeper of Malakir, two Vampire's Bite, three Colostria Highborn, three Diabolic Tutor, Two Urge to Feed, four Malakir Blood Witch, four Vampire Nighthawk, two Sanguine Bond, two Tendrils of Corruption, one Basilisk Collar, two Soren Markov, one Blood Tribute, two Consumed Spirit, three Feast of Blood, two Child of Night, twenty Swamps, and four Tectonic Edge. Now, the Tectonic Edge was put in there because, well, you're going to be playing against a lot of Jund, you're going to be playing against a lot of decks that uh, run more than one color, and not to mention the fact that there's tons of Manlands running around right now. So you pack Tectonic Edge, you're able to take out those threats, um, which is important. Um, yeah, definitely. Now, is, is <clears throat> Feast of Blood a sorcery or an instant? Feast of Blood is a sorcery, so you're not going to be able to take out Manlands with those. True, you can take them out with the... Um, Tendrils of Corruption. Urge to Feed. To, and, and Urge to Feed, you can take out three of them? Right, not Colonnade. Right, you can take out three of the five Manlands with uh, Urge to Feed, um, but you can only take out Raging Ravine in response to them declaring their attack. Once it becomes a 4-4, it's out of Urge to Feed range. Um, and then obviously the Stirring Wildwood is a 3-4, so it's out of Urge to Feed range. And the Colonnade is also a 4-4, four, four, so you can't kill it with that. So you need another way to deal with the Manlands. So, yeah, you might want to think about running Doomblade, although, you know, that might give you some limitations. Um, it, it, it might be, or it's less conditional than Feast of Blood. It's also an instant. It's the same cost, but Feast of Blood requires you to control two vampires. 
there's going to be times when you just don't have the vampires and you need to kill something, and if you don't have another way to do it, the Feast of Blood is going to be a dead card. It's just going to be sitting in your hand. This is very true. So if you have Doom Blades, we would suggest putting in Doom Blades over Feast of, Feast of Blood. Or maybe um, even Smother. Um, or maybe Smother, exactly. Right. Smother is an instant, costs the same amount, but it just destroys creatures that uh, have converted mana cost three or less, which is the Manlands are perfect targets for Smother. True. Um, Absolutely, so. because Manlands all have a converted mana cost of zero. Despite what their activation cost is, uh, they're a land, and lands have a converted mana cost of zero. So that is a very s smart idea. Um, now, in terms of the sideboard... Um, we've cut most of the cards from the sideboard because a lot of them went into the main deck and some of them we just felt were unnecessary. Um, I feel like Demon's Horn's a little unnecessary. Yes, it does gain you some life for the other thing, but there are better cards you could put in those slots, like Soren Markov. Soren Markov does your job very well, um, and, uh, it's just a great card. Um, so, sideboard, so far, we have three Needle Bite Trap. We put the Blood Witch in. Yeah. Three Needle Bite Trap, um... Which you can use against, um, I mean, God forbid anyone wants to play life gain against, uh, against a Sanguine Bond combo deck, but, uh, yeah. but anyway, point is, if they are gaining some life, you can use the Needle Bite Trap to swing with the Sanguine Bond out, you know, if they have a lifelink creature and they have to lose a life or something, I mean, it might be corner case. Point, our point is about the sideboard is that you really want to just, uh, see what cards you would need to put in your deck to do better against the decks that you typically play against. Right, so yeah, what you want to do is try, you know, if, if you like what we're saying, um, if you like our suggestions, pay attention to the decks and the cards that give you trouble, and then build your sideboard to take care of those particular problems. Um, like we said about Smother and Doomblade, um, maybe those should go in the sideboard. Maybe one, maybe play the Doomblades in the main deck and the Smothers in the sideboard or something like that because if you have the Doomblades in your main deck and you play against another Vampire's deck, the Doomblade's going to be a dead card. Mm -hmm. You could switch it and put Smother in. Um, if Manlands are giving you trouble, you can put the Smothers in um, in place of the Doomblades. Or the opposite. If somebody's not playing Manlands you don't, and you don't feel the need for Smother, you switch it out. But the point is... You want to play the deck, try to identify what cards are giving you problems, and then look at what you can do, what you can put in your sideboard to deal with those particular strategies. Um, that's basically how I build sideboards when, I, uh, you know, when I'm building a deck. I try to think, where is this deck weak? What, what is the weakness of this particular deck that I'm playing? And you know, how can I make that a little stronger with the slots that I have available in my sideboard. Now, I, I will say, I mean, like, we really wanted to keep, because this is your deck, we don't want to take over your deck entirely, so we really wanted to keep the spirit of mm -hmm. your deck alive. Uh, pardon the vampire pun there. But, like, um... <laughs> uh, so, but, but anyway, just for your reference, the cards that Joe and I, I'm guessing, both feel aren't that great, for standard, um, but we wanted to keep in anyway. Our Vampire's Bite. Um, what else? Um, I mean, I mean, for, for the most part, the Sanguine Bond Blood Tribute combo isn't the best. I mean, there are other a angles you can go with vampires that are stronger, but it is a cool interaction, and by all means, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, play with that, because it's fun. So we left that intact. 
Um, the other cards that we feel are just fairly weak for standard would be um, Child of Night and Feast of Blood, like we already said, and Consume Spirit to a lesser degree. Right, one, um, one card you might want to consider that I just thought of was Mind Sludge. Yes. That's a, it's an uncommon, right? It is an uncommon, uncommon. from Zendikar. Um, it's a reprint of an older card, but it's a very powerful card. And, yeah. um, you know, it's something you could certainly put in this deck and, and perform very well with. Um, so anyway, that's about it for, for that for right now. Huh. And we just got a, uh, <laughs> and we just got a chat from John Medina. <laughs> So John Medina just chatted us up right now, yeah, yeah. Um, which kind of reminds me that I was thinking about doing, I was thinking we should do a podcast one day where we do a chat room, mm -hmm. and um, we call it Chattastrophe, and because it's probably just going to be a disaster, um, yeah. where we just like talk to people live on chat, or we could just be chatting while we podcast, That's and true. like if funny yeah. stuff comes up, we could right. talk about it. He was, he was going to ask. Oh, us so we've questions. got a live question from right, John Medina. Yeah. Live question. Live question from John. Medina. When's the next? When's episode? the next episode? <laughs> as soon as, as soon as you leave us the hell alone to finish recording. recording. This, this is really like top eight magic podcast. Is that Becker? John Medina is our John Becker. Did you bad mouth? No. Yes. Did you bad mouth my view on the reserve list? Probably talking all kinds of smack. Okay, so we're really running out of time, so we're just going to answer any more emails that we w that we thought were interesting uh, another time. Okay, um, did you want to do a, save our voicemail for Keith's voicemail till next time? Sure. Okay. So, well, we did talk about his blog, right? So okay. we will save Keith's voicemail for the next time for the next episode. As we've mentioned in past episodes, we do have stickers available. If you're interested, send us an email with your mailing address. We'll send you free stickers. We right now. In the works um, are Yo MTG Tabs t-shirts, so I'm trying to figure out how uh, viable that will be, um, how realistic it is, and, and basically, if you're interested in a Yo MTG Tabs t-shirt, send us a message if you could, because I really like, I'd like to order some, I want to have them, but I don't want to over-order, and I don't want to under-order, right. and I have no idea of what like sizes I should order, because like... I would like to buy a smaller medium when I buy a t-shirt, but I've so far from the messages I've gotten, I've gotten several people saying they want 3XL. And so I'm like, that's a hell of a range of, you know, how many of each size do I order and things like that. So basically, here's the deal. I think what it's going to end up being is a dark gray shirt, um, American Apparel, which is, you know, pretty good shirt stock brand. Sure. Um, and... You know, we're not concerned with making a profit off of this. I just think it would be awesome to have T-shirts, and so you know, the cost is going to be as cheap as possible to cover the cost as much as I can do. So it seems like it's going to cost somewhere between thirteen dollars and seventeen dollars. Um, it may be a little more for the larger shirts, but hopefully not. If I can, you that's know, usually the way it goes with the larger shirts, though. Right. So, and that's what I I'm think saying, that people so. that like that people that you know buy larger shirts already figure that in. Right. You know okay. what I mean? Because that's just the way it is. The bigger shirts just cost more money because there's more material. So, yeah. Anyway, um, they're in the works. If you are actually interested in one, send us a message. Tell us uh, your size. Just, you, that's not like, you know, you're not confirming anything. You're not, you know, committing yourself to buying one. I just want to get a general idea of how many to order because I'd like to not, uh, I'd like to not run out and I'd also not like to have a box in my trunk for five years like our last band shirt that we had. 
Or um, the 950 CDs uh, from my old band that yeah, I, I printed. Yeah, so, uh, you know. Hell, everybody buys a shirt, gets a free one of my band's CDs. I gotta move these things somehow. <laughs> That's a good point. And stickers. And stickers. Free stickers for anybody who buys a shirt and anybody who doesn't. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, you can contact us at yomtgtaps at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail, which we will play. We only got one that's from Keith. He's not that important, so... Um, <laughs> just kidding, Keith. Uh, the voicemail line is 331-MTG-TAPS. Follow us on Twitter at yomtgtaps. That's both of us, but mostly Big Head Joe. Um, you can follow just Unless me. Unless my internet doesn't start working again, then it's going to be... Just me. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... My personal Twitter name is Affinity for Blue. Um, you can check out Yo MTG Taps on YouTube at youtube.com slash Yo MTG Taps. You can become a fan of Yo MTG Taps on Facebook. Just do a search for us. No, do you want to read it? Do you want to read it? I love I reading it. Read it. Go ahead. So www.facebook, I mean, I'm sorry, http colon slash slash www.facebook.com slash pages slash yo dash MTG dash Tap slash two three seven three eight three four four two eight four two. So uh, anyway, my blog is affinityforislands.com and Joe's blog is otherworldlyjourney.blogspot.com. Oh my god, this is a long episode. This is a really long episode and totally unintentionally long. But uh, thank you guys for hanging in there and thank you as always for listening. Um, we know you love it, so... Uh, we hope you love it anyway. Well, I mean, we know that the one time we had a short episode, people were like, we did long episode, why isn't it long? <laughs> it's like, alright, fine. Well... You're going to be begging us to shorten them after this one, so good. Yeah, there you go. Well, thanks for listening. Buy Pat Chapin's book. Buy Pat Chapin's book. Buy Pat Chapin's book. <laughs> Buy Next Level Magic. <laughs> Buy, Buy Next Level Magic. Bye. Don't